we'll begin just with a song and a prayer, uh, because we'll do some sharing of um, your uh, favorite verses, things that have come home to you later on, and that'll kind of count as our uh, devotional for the evening. So let's just sing. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You're my friend, and you are my brother, even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Gracious God, we pray for your presence with us this evening. We, we long that we should be in touch with you, and living lives with you, and lives that are in accordance with your word. And we pray that our talking together may make another contribution towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to leap into Deuteronomy, uh, where it says, um, it says at the top of the schedule for tonight, Deuteronomy, questions and answers. Deuteronomy means the first half, and questions and answers means the second half, but in fact, in talking about Deuteronomy, I'll, pick, I'll try to pick up some of, the, some of the things that have come up. Some of you have noticed that there are 118 questions. Is it 118? 108. Oh, I'm exaggerating. That's disgusting. Uh, that, that I posted on Moodle this afternoon, of, um, uh, that you have um, accumulated. Um, and that's great there are so many questions, because it means I can avoid the ones I don't know the answers to. Uh, but uh, I will give you the chance to um, stop such avoidance, because I'll say, well, I'm going to deal with this one and that one, and I'll give you the chance to say, you've avoided this one, and it's really important. But that's what we do in the second half. Uh, but first of all, a look at Deuteronomy. My microphone is not working again. I think that's the microphone one. How's that? No? Well, try that one then. Is the, how's that? That's better. Okay. Thank you. Are you coming next week? Yes. Good. Well, you can do the same next week then. That's good. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I've just noticed this note at the bottom of the page of the schedule for tonight where it says, turn in the papers by August the 1st and August the 15th. See the introductory pages. Read the instructions first. Um... Uh, two things that, um, to, that, that people most often uh, miss about that. One is, it's a real help to me if you entitle your, the file um, your name, paper one, or something like that. Don't call it OT501 or first paper or Pentateuch, because that's what everybody's are, right? It's a great help to me if you put your name in the, um, in the file, in, in the file title. And the other thing is that when I send it back to you, 
uh, and you think there's no comments or grade in it, there is really. Um, it's just that you don't know how to look for it, and you, you need to go to Alt I then M, isn't it? You know, to find the markup, uh, the version that will uh, that will reveal the comments uh, in there, um, and the instructions do tell you how to do that. Um, yes. So uh, Deuteronomy, I'm on page one two five, I think, where it says Deuteronomy in the New Testament. Does it? Do you agree that that's page one two five? Great. Here are some, as you'll see from that list, uh, points mostly that come from Matthew's Gospel, uh, but then with a couple from elsewhere, about the, what, what the New Testament makes of um, Deuteronomy, uh, and what Matthew in particular makes of it, that's what Jesus makes of it. Um, several people asked in their questions about h- how to convince Christians that they ought to study the Torah. Well... Th- um, one of, my, one of my ways of answering, my main way of answering that question, um, is it's not, not a kind of um, deductive, you ought to read it for the following reasons, but rather, here are the topics it, talk, talk, here's the, here are the topics it talks about in the following interesting ways. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's worth reading because of what it says. And yet, the very fact that the New Testament, uh, for people who think the New Testament is important, well, probably the kind of people you're trying to convince uh, that they should read the Torah, then uh, the, the, the fact that it um, refers uh, back to the Torah and the way it does that might possibly influence them. Uh, that, that was my presupposition back at the beginning uh, in referring to the 2 Timothy passage um, that talks about the Old Testament in general uh, and then, for instance, the 1 Corinthians passage where Paul picks up um, what's going on in Exodus and Numbers in order to apply them to the congregation. Um, at, at Corinth, you can see ways in which the New Testament is, uh, is itself taking seriously what's in the Torah, um, and that probably uh, ought to influence us. Um, it's no coincidence that most of these references come from Matthew, uh, because Matthew is a very Torah kind of book. Um, and, uh, and so it's Jesus uh, behaving in a way, in some, in some ways, a bit like Moses. Uh, It's a book that's uh, a a version of the gospel uh, that is likely written for the sake uh, of Jews who have come to believe in Jesus uh, and that's helping them to uh, bring together the Torah and their faith in Jesus. Though many of these passages uh, occur in in the other gospels as well. So, um, 1 Matthew 4, uh, here is Jesus... um, Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I always think that's the most astonishing verse. It's one that I, when I get to the end of that verse, I have to go back to the beginning because I can't see how it all fits together. He's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How can the Spirit lead you to be tempted by the devil? Well, apparently it can. Um, and uh, the tempter offers Jesus some suggestions of varying plausibility about things he might do. And each time he answers, it is written, it is written, it is written. Um, And each time he quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, Quotes actually from what you now know are the chapters in the second main chunk of Deuteronomy that lay out God's basic expectations within the terms of the covenant. 
uh, from Deuteronomy chapters uh, 4 or 5 through 11, where the uh, fundamental expectations of the covenant Lord are being laid before the people who are supposed to be uh, in covenant relationship with the covenant Lord. That's where these um, quotations come from. Um, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Um, Jesus assumes that the kind of things that you find in Deuteronomy um, are uh, God's word, and actually that they are life-giving. Part of the point, an implication of, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If Jesus is to get through this extraordinary experience of being tempted by the devil, that is itself inspired by the Holy Spirit, if he's to get through that, then he needs to know scripture, Scripture is his key to getting through it, and Deuteronomy is where he finds um, the criteria for testing the suggestions of this weird character who comes to see him in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is God's word, and it's life-giving. Chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, is where you get Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, uh, but I say to you. Uh, And when Jesus says that, he's not saying... Okay, the things that you were told back um, before, uh, they don't apply anymore. Uh, Okay, you heard before that you mustn't murder. Now I say, kill who you like. Uh, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, have it off with anybody you fancy. Uh, That's not actually what Jesus says. Um, But that is, Jesus isn't going back uh, on what the Torah has got to say. Uh, He is building upon it. Last time I used the image of the two stories of a building. The kind of thing that it says in the Torah quite often is the first story of the building. Some of the things that Jesus has got to say here, the Torah itself builds on that with second story stuff. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is building um, on the first story with some second story stuff. Um, Going beyond certainly the way in which the um, Torah and Deuteronomy in particular were interpreted um, in his day uh, and also going beyond things that Deuteronomy itself says. Sometimes, at least. Uh, As I put on the sheet, thus, uh, it turns out that Deuteronomy is not God's last word. Because you can tick off, uh, check, uh, declare that you've fulfilled uh, a number of those things that it says in Deuteronomy, you can't therefore say, okay, I'm all right then. Um, It's not God's last word. Matthew chapter 15 is Jesus talking about the way in which uh, religious people in their day can avoid their obligations um, to Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy says, Honour your father and your mother. Whoever speaks evil of father or mother shall surely die. Um, But uh, the religious people of the day had a clever way, rather like estate planning or that kind of thing for us, uh, whereby they could um, avoid the things that belong to them continuing to belong to them in a technical sense because they belong to, what do you call those things when you do estate planning? Um, A trust. Um, And therefore, you didn't have to use your resources in order to look after your parents. Hooray! You can hold on to your resources and not have to waste them on your stupid parents. Um, So, uh, we have ways of making sure that we avoid the demands of Scripture. Uh, You can always do that. Um, I'm, um, I sometimes say that, uh, I was thinking this this morning, that I was thinking about the, uh, the fact that 
Exodus gives you all those six chapters or whatever it is on how to build the wilderness dwelling and then gives you another six chapters in which it says exactly the same thing really about how they did it. Well, that's stupid. You'd hope the Holy Spirit would have more sense. You could just say, so they did it in accordance with what Moses said. And then you could use those six chapters to say some really useful things like whether you should baptise babies or you shouldn't baptise babies and what's the real truth about predestination and a few things like that that would help us and that would actually answer quite a number of the questions in these 108. Why didn't God do that? Well, I think one of the... I mean, if they had said, do baptise babies or don't baptise babies, we'd have found our way round it. We have our ways of getting round it. Um... It's contextual, we say. That's our way of getting around things. Deuteronomy can say things straight, but because it says things straight, um, it doesn't mean it's not easy to avoid. We have ways of getting around it. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, I said it's not God's last word, um, and uh, neither is it God's first word. Uh, Here is the passage uh, about the divorce regulation not designed to give permission to uh, people to get a divorce, but presupposing that people will get divorces and laying down some regula- a regulation that will protect uh, a, a woman in that context. Um, but, but again, the, the reasoning behind that uh, isn't necessarily something that people took seriously. They'd rather utilise the excuse that it, pr- it um, pr- provides them, and have some discussion about its legal implications. Because that's another thing we like. Another thing we like doing: study the imp- study the scriptures and work out their implications, and ask tough questions about them, and think about them theologically. Anything to avoid obeying them. Is divorce okay? The Pharisees say, Moses gave us that regulation. Ah, says Jesus, um, it wasn't like that from the beginning. That wasn't God's first word, Jesus points out. Deuteronomy um, was God's second word, not God's first word. And God, God's first word back um, at creation uh, was something that expressed God's ultimate demands. And the ultimate demands are there in Deuteronomy too, uh, as I suggested the other day uh, in talking about the top of the mountain stuff, where, where when God says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, then that's top of the mountain stuff. But Deuteronomy has got lots of bottom of the mountain stuff. And uh, you need to remind yourself um, that it uh, talks about the top of the mountain as well as the bottom of the mountain. Or we need to be aware of God's view from the top of the mountain as well as what God says in light of how things are at the bottom of the mountain or in light of the image that I've used here, uh, it's not God's first word. That same chapter, later on, (coughs) along comes a um, great spiritual obedient guy who says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now that's not the right answer, is it? That's not a very evangelical answer. But anyway... Uh, If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. That's not a very evangelical answer either. Who is this person, this Jesus? He doesn't give the right answers. Um, But he's dealing with an individual, and you can see um, how he's working working with him pastorally. Uh, Keep the commandments. Which commandments? Jesus said, you shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Done it, says the young man. Okay. 
Go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Uh, Jesus needed to apply... Is it significant that uh, when he... Um, when Jesus gives him a kind of selected... Um, gives him a selection from the Ten Commandments, he doesn't include the Tenth One. He shall not covet. Um, uh, uh, and that's the one that underlies the command about selling your possessions and giving your money to the poor. Uh, and that's the reason why the guy goes away grieving. Because coveting applies not only to what you wish you'd got, but also to what you've got. Um, Jesus knows that the demands of Deuteronomy need to be applied individually. Uh, and that's what he does in this conversation. How is coveting things that you already have? Well, it means being attached to them. He, he, is, he is attached to the things that he's got. It's not in a literal sense covered. Well, it is kind of desiring them. It's being, it's loving them. Um, he, he, he's, he, he, he loves the things that he's got. He loves his stuff. Matthew 22. Um, it was, it, it's been the Pharisees who were in trouble before. Now it's the Sadducees who will get themselves into trouble. Because so, so, if um, they kept their mouths shut, they'll be okay. They asked Jesus a question. Teacher, Moses says, If a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers amongst us. The first married, died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. Second did the same, so also the third, down to the seventh. Um, which reminds me of the story that um, the great blues singer Barbara Morrison tells about the, her husbands who died of mushroom soup poisoning. Her first husband died of mushroom soup poisoning. Her second husband died of mushroom soup poisoning. Her third husband died because she hit him on the head because he wouldn't drink the mushroom soup. <laughs> and she'll be doing a concert in the Pasadena Jazz Institute on the first Sunday in July. And if you've never heard Barbara Morrison, uh, you ought to hear her. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection then, say the Pharisees, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. Got ya! da 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 Say the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees. Uh, here they are taking um, a, a significant regulation in, the, in Deuteronomy, one that to us uh, looks important, the notion of um, somebody's brother-in-law marrying uh, a widow uh, in order that she could have children, in order that her husband's uh, name can still uh, uh, be uh, applied to their, to their land. It uh, seems a, a strange regulation to us, but it, something like that is quite common in traditional societies. But they are taking that not out of an actual concern with how uh, God's word works out, and it probably wasn't a very living um, rule, uh, particularly in an urban society like Jerusalem, but rather because they, they're playing theological games with Jesus. Um, showing how uh, the scriptures in Deuteronomy are capable of being misused as a way of playing theological games. Jesus gives the most fabulous answer. I mean, he is Jesus, so it's not surprising, I suppose, really. Um, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
That's pretty devastating, isn't it? Nobody ever says that to me. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. No, what they say to me is, yes, you know the Scriptures, but you don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. It's the most wonderful piece of argument. You see, with the, the Sadducees only accepted the Torah. They didn't accept the prophets and the writings. And it's pretty hard to prove the resurrection from the prophets and the writings, but it's even harder from the um, Torah. Uh, but Jesus produces the most superb, brilliant, theological, um, piece of theological exposition, exegesis of the Torah. If God described himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, if God got into a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how on earth could, could those people go out of existence? Once God gets into a relationship with you, that makes you a living person in a new kind of sense. Abraham became more of a living person when God got into a relationship with him. So how could he simply be dead? It couldn't happen. It's a superb piece of theological argument. Um, he is not the God of the de- he is God not of the dead but of the living. He, he's once once Abraham, Isaac, Jacob become the living, then they're bound to stay the living. Their resurrection is bound to happen. Two or three things in relation to people's questions arising out of that. Um, one is somebody somebody asked about how you could argue um, on the basis of the Torah. If somebody only believed in the Torah, how could you argue for things? Well, there's Jesus doing it. Um, and uh, uh, with, with a with a superb super piece of theological argument uh, in which he accepts the constraints, as it were, that the Sadducees put on him. Um, you, re- you won't meet many people who only um, accept the Torah. I mean, because Jewish people, for instance, would accept the whole of the um, script, the, Old, the Old Testament scriptures, and and do believe in the resurrection anyway, if they believe at all. Um, but but uh, the people you might need, if you ever are uh, fortunate enough. Uh, to go to Nablus uh, in the north part of the West Bank of Palestine uh, and climb Mount Gerizim uh, and meet a Samaritan priest uh, the, who, who the, the Samaritans have their kind of colony on the top of there, then the Samaritans only accept the Torah. So you could just keep that in the back of your head. If that should ever happen to you, then you need to be able to argue on the base of the Torah with the, uh, with the Samaritans. Um, No, the other thing I'll say in a minute, will I? Yes, I think I will. Um, Matthew two twenty two thirty seven. just further on in that um, passage. Um, uh, the Pharisees, who remain stupid, uh, they can't learn the lesson that they know that Jesus will win these arguments. Nevertheless, having heard that, that he'd silenced the Sadducees, try another question of him. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Deuteronomy, as I put on the sheet, says the most important thing. The first of the commandments, um, and, uh, and the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Uh, the second, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, comes from Leviticus. So interesting that there's one from each of those two books. And um, along with the passage about the about divorce, I think those two um, sayings of Jesus 
give you two priceless hermeneutical clues to understanding the Torah. Whenever you're seeking to understand obscure sayings, somebody in their questions wants to know why not cooking a kid goat in its mother's milk is so important that it gets mentioned three times. Uh, and to which the true answer is, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. Um, uh, but, uh, but in principle, when you're, when you're reading these laws and you're wondering what's the point of them, why they say the kind of things that they do, then these two hermeneutical clues, keep these two, clues of, these two hermeneutical clues of Jesus um, in the back of your mind. One is that the Torah is, is an expression both of how things were from the beginning and of what makes allowance for human hardness of heart. In terms of my um, uh, axes the other day, uh, it's, the, it's the top and the bottom uh, of the, it's that vertical axis. Um, it's how things were at the beginning and how things are in light of human hardness of heart. <coughs> when you're looking at particular regulations within Deuteronomy or somewhere else, ask, um, how would it fit with regard to that axis? Uh, the other question you can try asking um, is, okay, if Jesus says the that the entirety uh, of the Torah and the prophets hangs upon love God and love your neighbour, then try asking the question, how is this commandment an expression of loving God and loving your neighbour? And how I find that helpful is that quite often when you read uh, learned scholarly books, commentaries and stuff like that, they'll come, up, they'll come out with a variety of interpretations of, a law, of laws, some of which make the laws really sound rather um, nasty. You've come across laws you don't like very much. Um, but there are often, there's often a variety of interpretations possible of laws. Uh, and this bit of, uh, of, of hermeneutics on Jesus' part uh, points you towards uh, an, an interpretation of the significance of a, law, of a law that sees it as an expression of love towards God and or love towards your neighbour. Um, try asking that question about how that, how that could be an expression of one or other of those um, concerns that come out of the Torah itself? How are, they, how are different laws in the Torah an expression either of love for God or love for your neighbour? So I really, one day, maybe I'll produce a different diagram in which Jesus' two axes are there instead of my two axes, or, a, or an extra diagram or something. Yes, I shall work on that. Those all from Matthew. Uh, two from elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 9, which I quoted the other day, you, sh you mustn't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned, or does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was indeed written for our sake that whoever ploughs should plough in hope, whoever threshes should thresh in hope of a share in the crop. If we have sown spiritual good, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we still more? Um, and my comment on that uh, is it relates to us even when it doesn't look like it. In what I called the other day, I think, um, Paul's imaginative uh, hermeneutic. No, it wasn't Paul, it was Origen, wasn't it? But, and, but then I gave this as an example. Uh, here is Paul picking up a, a verse in Deuteronomy that doesn't look as if it's got a great deal to do with us. Well, it has. Now, where's Tom? 
tell, tell them about um, oxen and asses and those things you were telling me the other day that you were so shy about, and now I'm exposing you. Yes. Why shouldn't you yoke an ox and an ass together? Here is the farmer's answer. Yeah, it, uh, it, and it wouldn't work very well, presumably. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so if if you are um, somebody of uh, who's involved in agriculture, then some rules about oxen, oxen and asses are really important. Um, but if you're not, uh, and Paul isn't, uh, and and most uh, the people in the kind of urban contexts for which um, with which the New Testament concerns itself, and the urban context out of which many of us live. Uh, then it can look as if it's all irrelevant. But Paul uh, can see a significance in that statement about oxen um, that relates to people even if, if, even if they're not themselves uh, involved in agriculture. It relates to us even when it doesn't look like it. Nevertheless, um, is it for oxen that God is concerned? You think so, Tom, don't you? Sure, of course God is concerned about oxen. I think so anyway. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Deuteronomy was concerned about oxen too. Um, and so what Paul is doing here is actually not a piece of exegesis, but a piece of Holy Spirit-inspired application of the text. Seeing some Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired uh, insight out of this text, which really probably hasn't got anything to do with what Deuteronomy had got in mind, but everything to do with what God needed to say to the Corinthians at this, at this point. Now, that um, relates to, uh, again, uh, questions raised by one or two of the postings, the, 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 the postings questions, about the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Um, and actually, Jesus' use uh, of I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob isn't so very different. Um, when the New Testament derives lessons from the Old Testament, from De Deuteronomy or elsewhere, Sometimes uh, the lessons that it draws have everything to do with the uh, original, con the meaning of the words in their original context. And if we look down at the, those ones in those other ones in Matthew that uh, I've talked about just now, um, they are all um, taking account of what the meaning of the passage would be in its original context. But quite often the New, the New Testament isn't doing that. Uh, that's not the framework with, with which it works. The process whereby uh, it comes to use the scriptures is, is one in which um, the New Testament guys let the words of the Old Testament texts have free reign with them and see new significance in them uh, that nobody's ever seen before and that isn't there in the original. It's actually the same process as I've suggested to you uh, in connection with talking about tithes um, and the process that Brueggemann talks about in talking about the Sabbath. The New Testament guys um, don't necessarily, don't as a matter of principle, take any notice of what the Old Testament text originally meant. Uh, and the, um, and uh, the Holy Spirit is, works through that process. So, when you're trying to understand an Old Testament text and a New Testament text, particularly when the New Testament text and the Old Testament text, when the New Testament text quotes the Old Testament text, don't think that you need somehow to be able to make them say the same thing, connect them with each other at an exegetical level, because often it doesn't work. Don't worry about it. Relax. It's, it's one of those concerns about modernity and critical study 
that, that, that made it seem as if when the New Testament guys quoted the Old Testament, they ought to quote it in connection with what it originally meant. And so commentators um, go into all sorts of contortions to show how the New Testament text does fit the Old Testament text really. And if the New Testament guy had written this in an exegetical paper for Professor... Um, well, let's, not, let's leave it, not putting any names in. Um, then they wouldn't have got into trouble. They would have got into trouble. These guys are not writing exegetical papers. I think writing exegetical papers is great. It's fine. Um, and, and as uh, we've been doing in this quarter, understanding the Old Testament in its own right is really important because the Holy Spirit was involved in the inspiration of that text, was involved in the process of communication where God, whereby God, God was speaking through Deuteronomy or other parts of the Torah to people in Old Testament times and therefore there are things for us to learn from that. Uh, but there are also things for us to learn um, from the, the more serendipity way in which uh, God speaks through the scriptures and not least uh, actually through Deuteronomy. Um, when I was at seminary, um, I uh, went through uh, one of those times when uh, I wasn't sure that I really belonged to the saved, to the elect. I don't suppose that happens nowadays because you don't think in those terms, but these were the good old days. Um, and I, I, didn't, I didn't have any doubt that the Christian faith was true, but I wasn't sure whether I belonged to the elect. Um, and now, a weird thing about seminary in those days, or at least in about Episcopal seminaries, is you have to go to chapel every day. Um, and that means every day you sit there in chapel and you listen to the scriptures being read. Isn't that a strange thing to do, to read the Bible every day? But we had to do it. Um, and it happened that one day when I was going through this, this time of spiritual depression, you could call it, or doubt or something, um, it happened that, that the Old Testament lesson was from Deuteronomy 17. Because yesterday it had been Deuteronomy 16 and tomorrow it will be Deuteronomy 18. Um, and Deuteronomy 17 is the passage that I did read a bit out of the other day uh, that instructs uh, the Israelites about how uh, to go about setting a king over them uh, if they ever decide they want to do that. And one of the things that it says in there uh, about the king, a verse that we did talk about the other day, uh, in connection with um, military resources, horses and so on, is that, is that um, the Lord has said to you, uh, as, as, it, as, it, as it says in the King James Bible, because this was about a million years ago, um, you shall not return that way again. Now, those words, you shall, it's in the NRSV, it's you must never return that way again. And that's actually a more, a more accurate translation, really. But the King James Bible had got, you shall not return that way again. And that came to me, um, as a seminary student, as a monumental reassurance from God that he, that he had taken hold of me um, and that I did belong to his people uh, and that he wouldn't let go of me. Uh, that he wouldn't um, uh, let go of me so that I kind of fell away into the world. You shall not return that way again. And I came into chapel that morning, uh, not sure of my standing in relation to God, and I went out um, spiritually rejoicing. But that had got nothing to do with the meaning of the text. You see? Because, as the NRS makes, NRSV makes clear, that verse in Deuteronomy isn't saying something which isn't giving a promise from God, which is how it came to me. It's giving a command from God. You must not return that way again. Uh, but God, and you can't argue with God, 
God chose to use that particular verse to come home, to bring home to me the fact that he'd taken hold of me and he wasn't going to let go of me. God didn't have to do that. God could have taken the um, literal meaning of some other verse uh, that would have made that promise, but God actually took that verse that way. Um, and uh, you probably had your own experience of that kind uh, of thing happen to you. Uh, now, we haven't been very good at thinking theologically about that, um, particularly in the context of modernity, because evangelical interpretation of Scripture, like everybody else's interpretation of Scripture, was kind of rationalistic. Exegesis was the only thing that counted in the context of modernity. But in the context of, of a postmodern um, a postmodern ways of thinking, it's easy, easier for us, I think, to come to terms with the pre-modern way of interpreting Scripture that's illustrated by the New Testament itself, um, in which they, they know um, that they gain insight from Deuteronomy and other books, from the words that are there that um, stimulate thought and enable them to see new things, um, even though the thing that they're enabled to see uh, is something that's got nothing to, more or less to do, well, no, let's say nothing to do with the original meaning. Now, of course, uh, you have to face the question, okay, how do you know that it's God uh, that's saying that to you? Um, now, with the New Testament guys, it's not so bad, because after all, they were inspired. Um, uh, but, of course, on the other hand, nobody knew they were inspired at the time. Uh, and so, just as nobody knew when they wrote the Gospels that they were the Gospels that were going to be in the Bible because the Bible didn't exist yet. They had to go through a process of uh, reflection and evaluation uh, of things that were supposed to be, that may be, that possibly came from God, um, and seek to think together about that. And when you're talking about the um, interpretation of texts, then a significance of being able to do exegesis as it were properly is that it helps you to do some checking on um, that more spiritual, intuitive exegesis that I was talking about just now. When you're trying to test what somebody says the scriptures are saying now, when it's got nothing to do with their original meaning, then if you can't establish that the kind of thing that you're saying that the scriptures are saying now is consistent with some of the things that, that the scriptures say when they're interpreted literally and exegetically, uh, you're in trouble. Um, and that's the kind of criterion uh, that the uh, fathers and the medieval period uh, used with regard to allegorical exegesis, which is in a way is what I'm talking about. So strict exegesis and this more intuitive approach to interpretation complement each other um, in what I described the other day as a left brain and a right brain uh, kind of fashion. Um, you all know uh, that um, the average exegetical commentary is incredibly, bo incredibly boring, totally useless if you ever want to preach a sermon or want to hear what the Word of God has got to say to you. Because those books all belong in the context of uh, modern thinking. They just try to do that historical thing. And at the end, you, come to, you, you ask yourself, well so, well, so what? That doesn't help me a great deal, does it? Um, on the other hand, if one only, apply, if one only relies on the intuitive... Um, then you may go into all sorts of heresy. The two complement each other uh, in important sorts of ways. Uh, finally, and maybe, yes, probably, another kind of example, really, of the same thing. As I said at the very beginning of the course, um, if you think the important thing about the Old Testament is that it um, gives you prophecies of the Messiah, you're not going to have much use for the Torah, 
But um, the Jews did go to John the Baptist uh, and asked him who he was. Uh, and he said, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? Because the end of Malachi could give you uh, the impression that Elijah is coming back. Nope, says John the Baptist. Are you the prophet? They then say. And he says, nope. Why should they ask that question? They would ask that question on the basis of Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'm sorry, on the basis of Deuteronomy 18. Sorry, my, my eyes jumped a line. On the basis of Deuteronomy 18. Uh, and sorry, the verse numbers aren't there. It's the passage beginning at verse 15. Um, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Um, and the NRSV margin says, gives you the alternative translation, the Lord your God will raise up for you prophets like me from among your own people. Uh, and it thereby does expose uh, the tricky question about that passage in Deuteronomy. Uh, it, it's, it's in the context probably not talking about one prophet who will one day come who will be a kind of Messiah figure, but about a succession of prophets who will be Moses-like in relation to the people. Um, and that's, that certainly is what happened. You could say that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those guys, each of them was a fulfilment uh, of that promise about God raising up a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But the passage can be read as if it's talking about uh, a messianic kind of figure, a single future figure and it was uh, sometimes read that way uh, in in New Testament times so that talking about the prophet to come would be a way of thinking about what we would what we would refer to as the Messiah Stephen makes that assumption uh, in his speech uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 37 Um, Moses said to the Israelites God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people. Um, And Stephen will be thinking there in terms of Jesus as the Messiah. And so you can say on the basis of that kind of interpretation uh, of Acts 18 uh, that John uh, and Acts uh, are both presupposing that Jesus does fulfill the promise of Deuteronomy. My comment exegetically would be... um, I doubt whether the Deuteronomy passage uh, literally is talking about one prophet, one messianic kind of prophet. Um, but the, the vision, uh, in a broader sense, of what Deuteronomy and the rest of the Torah has for God's people is still indeed one that Jesus fulfills. Uh, there were one or two people in their postings asked uh, about questions those, along those lines um, in terms of God's promise and God's purpose and what is God doing and how did it find fulfillment Uh, when you get to the end of Deuteronomy God's promise to Abraham has found some degrees of fulfillment, some forms of fulfillment some aspects of fulfillment and when you get into into Joshua then it's going to find uh, a further very important stage when the people are in the land Uh, but but Joshua will also make clear that God's promise isn't completely fulfilled and the, chapter, and the books that follow, 
uh, will, sh will show you how that degree of fulfillment of the promises in the Torah um, comes to unravel. So that, the, uh, so that Deuteronomy and the Torah as a whole and the Old Testament as a whole uh, remains uh, a declaration of a purpose of God to bring blessing to the nations that isn't fulfilled within Old Testament times itself. Um, and it's that promise that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of. Well now, anybody want to say anything about any of that? Hello? Spirit is actually enlightening people in developing, um, such as that passage, like developing over time so that it's a greater, deeper meaning. Well, certainly the Holy Spirit's enlightening people, but I don't think the Holy Spirit is enlightening people to the meaning of the passage, because there's no basis for saying that that's the meaning of the passage. Oh, no, uh, I mean just to broaden it out and somewhat change the meaning. Well, well, yeah, I think use the words to mean something different, I I'm quite happy to say. Uh, people do talk about a fuller meaning or prophecies having two forms of fulfillment and things like that. I think those are all modern ways of trying to give account of something um, that, <coughs> that we can afford to abandon uh, if we're prepared to see that the Holy Spirit simply does something different with those words from what the Holy Spirit was doing with those words originally. And there doesn't have to be some... We don't have to generate... What, what feel to me to be rather phony links between the kind of way the New Testament quotes the passage and what its original meaning was. We can simply say, it's okay. The Holy Spirit is taking those words to mean something really quite different. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Um, okay. I think I am going to jump... I'm going to leave Deuteronomy's both ends for now. So turn over to the next page, which I drew your attention to at the very beginning, and we looked at at the very beginning, uh, where it says U.S. values. Um, views that you might reckon are viewed positively in the U.S. Um, ones that I asked you, what would you add, what would you take away? How do they compare with Deuteronomy? What do we need to learn from Deuteronomy? And what we'll do now is have uh, five minutes in which you talk with each other now about how you now see that uh, in light of reading the Torah in general, but Deuteronomy in particular. What strike you uh, as values that we ought to add to that list? What strike you as the things that we need to be most wary of? Okay, talk to each other for five minutes about that. Okay, okay, okay. Is that really five minutes? Yes, that's really five minutes. Wow. Haven't you got the answers yet? Okay, let's have um, six things we'll add and six things we'll take away. What would you like to add? Community. I'm sorry? Community. Community. I like that one. Rest. 
That's a revolutionary one. Generosity is a value in our culture. <coughs> Do you think? Oh, I'll put it. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, to a European, one of the great things uh, about the U.S. actually is philanthropy, is generosity in that sense. Uh, but uh, so we're good at philanthropy, but not at generosity. <laughs> yes, and how you define generosity? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Okay, six things you'd like to take away. Sorry, take away from what? Sorry, from the list of values. Six things to take away from that list of values. Fame. Sorry? Fame. Fame. Speed. Sorry? Speed. Speed. Efficiency with money. Youth and beauty. Well, that'd be a shame. <laughs> okay. Um, right, now. Uh, I'm going to jump over Deuteronomy's both ends. I'm going to carry on jump, jumping over Deuteronomy's both ends. I'll see if I get to them in a minute. On to the next page. Page 127, I think, where it says the arguments for the mosaic origin of Deuteronomy. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the origin of Deuteronomy and it, bearing in mind several people in their questions said they wanted me to talk some more about the authorship of the Pentateuch and what different theories were and stuff like that. So I'll uh, talk about Deuteronomy in particular but try to um, set that in the context of the, broader, uh, of, that, of the broader question about the origin of the Pentateuch. Um, let's, sorry, let's first of all go back to page 25 to review the history that you need to have in your head if you're to understand the questions about the origin of Deuteronomy as well as of uh, the Torah as a whole. Page 25 where it says at the top, outline of Old Testament history. Um, and then, then remember that only the top, two, the, the top about three lines... Um, are the concern of the content of the Torah, whatever came before the Exodus, the Exodus itself, and then the people being on the verge of the entry into the land. But then you have to keep reminding yourself that the people for whom the Torah was written were people who lived on the rest of that page. All the way through the rest of that page are the people who uh, are intended to treat the story in the Torah as their story and intended to uh, treat the content of the instructions in the Torah as designed to shape their life. Um, and you need to keep keeping that in mind, not just imagining the story happening 
uh, imagining the con- Moses delivering these laws, but keep in your awareness that the thing is actually written for people who are living later on. Paul's point uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 uh, was that the things happened way back then, but they were written down for our instruction, he says. But that was already true within Old Testament times. They were written down for the instruction of the Israelite people through Old Testament times uh, and then for Christian people. So keep in mind the audience. And from that point of view, then, the, the rest of the story of Old, Test- of, of Old Testament times is important background to why the Torah is what it is, because they were the people it was written for. So there is the period um, of the uh, judges. I just mentioned there Deborah. Uh, and on uh, a plausible view, the oldest of the laws in the Torah, the ones in Exodus 20 to 23 and Exodus 34, which include at least two references to not, see, not cooking a kid goat in its mother's milk, uh, but also um, lots of brief instructions about other things, um, that, that suggest a not very sophisticated and not very urbanised um, and not very politicised culture. Uh, it's a plausible view that the, uh, that the Exodus laws are the oldest of the laws and that that's their background in the period after when the Israelites are first in the land. Then there's the period of um, the, the united monarchy, Saul, David and Solomon ruling over Israel as a whole, the entire people. And the traditional critical view has been that the first connected version of Israel's story, the J in J, E, D and P, comes from that period, and in particular related to the so-called Solomonic Enlightenment. That is, here's a time in which uh, David in particular, having sorted out all the Philistines and all those guys, the Israelites in Solomon's day are in a position to sit back and think, okay, who are we? What's it about? Who are we as a people? How do we fit into God's purpose? What's God doing with us? What's God doing with the world? And that the, the J story, um, the original version, as it were, if you like, of the Torah story, um, is the answer that the Holy Spirit inspired them to formulate in that kind of period that told them who they were and where they came from uh, and what God's intention through them was. After Solomon's day, the nation divides into two, into Ephraim and Judah. And that might explain why there are then two versions, two two basically similar versions of this story, J and E. J then being the version that they, as they told the story in Jerusalem, and E being the version as they told the story in Ephraim. uh, With uh, basically the same plot, but some bits of differences, a bit like the differences between the Gospels. The 9th century is the time um, of uh, the prophets who didn't get books named after them, like Elijah and Elisha. Uh, the 8th century is the time of the people who did get books named after them, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah. In the context of this key development of the domination of a superpower uh, through the Middle East, uh, of a Mesopotamian superpower, first of all it's Assyria, Um, and that brings about the end of Ephraim, the end of the northern kingdom. The life of Ephraim in that period, and then the life of of Judah in the period that follows, uh, is is one, as the books of Kings describe it, uh, that uh, pretty much ignores the kind of thing you'd find anywhere in the Torah. 
by way of the kind of way they worshipped and what kind of gods they worshipped and how they worshipped those gods, uh, as well as the way that they lived, as well as the way they lived their social life. And uh, it, it's then against that background uh, that it's worth seeking to understand Deuteronomy. The political context is the Babylonians taking over control as the superpower uh, of the Middle East. Uh, and uh, in that context of the weakness, uh, the decline of Assyria, um, King Josiah is, from a political point of view, in a position to do what somebody else wouldn't have been able to do in a different context, to, to bring about a reform um, of Judah's life so that it's not in such contravention of the kind of thing that the Torah says. Um, the story is told in 2 Kings 22 and 23 um, of the discovery of a Torah book uh, in the temple. Uh, and it's in light of that that Josiah goes about his reform. Uh, and when you compare the contents of what Josiah did um, with the contents of different parts of the Torah, then it's Deuteronomy um, that Josiah's reform looks as if it's most designed to be an implementing of. So, connecting Deuteronomy with a period um, of Josiah or the period before then, uh, seeing Deuteronomy as starting to be a, a living influence in Judah's life in Josiah's day, has been the linchpin um, of the uh, critical understanding of how the Pentateuch came into existence. So now you've got J and E and D. Uh, J, um, maybe the time of the uh, United Monarchy. Uh, e, from the time uh, shortly afterwards amongst the people of Ephraim. Both of them incorporating some of those laws in Exodus. Uh, but, but D then, reworking the kind of things that those Exodus laws say uh, in order to speak to the context of a more sophisticated, more developed, more urbanised society. So, it's Deuteronomy that talks about how you tell the difference between false prophets and true prophets. They didn't need to know that back in the period of the judges, because there weren't any. But there's a big problem about uh, lots of prophets around, some of whom are true prophets and some of whom are false prophets, by the time you're in the 8th century or the 7th century. So, Deuteronomy covers that issue. What the king is supposed to be is an issue that Deuteronomy will cover. Lots more instruction in Deuteronomy on how to celebrate the festivals because it's a more sophisticated and developed society. So Josiah does his best to clean up the act of Judah but in the end fails. Uh, and the practice of worshipping other gods, uh, worshipping my means of images reasserts itself in the decades that follow Josiah. And so Judah falls to Babylon in 587 in the same sort of way as Ephraim had fallen to Assyria a hundred years previously. Um, and uh, the key people from Jerusalem are taken off into exile. And it's, again, a plausible view. It kind of makes sense if you see the exile as a period in which the material that we have in the Torah is taken to a next stage. And you can see that in at least, two at least two different ways. One is that when you read the, the creation story uh, and other aspects of, the gen of Genesis against the background of life in exile, 
suddenly you see significances in it that you might not have spotted before. You can see how Genesis 1 is telling the story of creation, retelling the story of creation, because the Adam and Eve story already exists. But Genesis 1 is a retelling of the story of creation in order to bring home the significance of creation for people who are living in exile. As it were to say to them, you know what the Babylonians say about creation? I'll tell you the real truth about creation. And then you can also see how priests, like Ezekiel, who was a priest, or would have been a priest if he'd been, um, if he hadn't been taken off into exile, when you've got priests like Ezekiel uh, and his fellow priests in Babylon, who aren't able to function as priests because they're not in the temple, indeed nobody can function in the temple as priests because the temple had been uh, devastated, there they are with all the traditions about how the priests used to do their work in the temple before the exile. And at least it's a plausible notion uh, that in that context the, the priests put their stuff into writing um, with various sorts of significance. Uh, they put into writing how you, how you offer sacrifices, how you celebrate the Day of Atonement, and so on. Uh, and it's partly a statement of hope about maybe one day we'll be able to do it again, or if we can't, and maybe our children or our grandchildren will be able to do it. And it's also a statement of commitment. We know that the way things were done in the temple uh, was often wrong. Uh, and so we're going to lay out the right way to do it, the way that honours Yahweh, so that when we do go back, or when our children go back, or when our great-grandchildren, or when our grandchildren go back, then we or they will be able to do it properly. And on that double uh, basis, then the idea that the fourth of the um, sources of the Pentateuch came into existence in the context of the exile makes sense. So you've had J and E and D, and now you've got P, the priestly strand within the Pentateuch, which is both um, a new version of the story in telling about creation and so on, but also um, a collection of new uh, laws which um, tell you about how to offer sacrifice and so on. On the traditional critical view, then that chronological order uh, emphasises the way that P is rather later than D. I've mentioned to you a strong Jewish, um, uh, diaspora Jewish, and also Israeli Jewish um, uh, conviction that actually the material in P uh, is of similar date to Deuteronomy, even if it's in the context of the exile that, that it's put into writing. And that, for me, kind of, that, that makes sense to me. So if you've got E as the original, uh, then D and P are parallel um, reworkings, rethinkings, elaborations of uh, law as it existed earlier with different um, foci, foci of concern. Deuteronomy with more of a concern uh, for the community's everyday life and the P material with more of a concern for how you do things in the temple. God makes it possible for uh, people to return from exile with the fall of Babylon to Persia in 539. And in the next century, uh, Ezra comes back to Jerusalem with bringing with him the Torah. Um, and it's a plausible view that now this is the point at which the Pentateuch, more or less as we have it, is in existence. That Ezra is able to bring it with him, that they've done the work of putting it together into the form of the, of, of the Torah as we have it, uh, and that Ezra and also Nehemiah um, are involved in seeking to get the people of Jerusalem 
not only to live in accordance with Deuteronomy, which is what Josiah was after, but to live in accordance with the Torah as a whole. In a way, then, the last episode in the Old Testament of the story of the Torah uh, is in the Greek period, uh, where I've mentioned uh, Alexander um, taking over uh, from the Persians in 333. And then with Assyrian and Egyptian, with two, with two sub-empires uh, taking over control of much of Alexander's empire after his death, uh, an empire centred in Syria, an empire centred in Egypt, uh, with um, Jerusalem, Judah as the dog's bone in between the two, sometimes under the control of Egypt, sometimes under the control of Syria. Uh, and in the context of the second century, uh, rebelling against the attempt by Antiochus IV to impose Syrian forms of worship on the temple in Jerusalem because they want to be faithful to, to, to Torah. It's for the sake of being faithful to what the Torah has to say about the way that they ought to worship Yahweh um, that they engage in a rebellion against the Syrian uh, authorities that are seeking to introduce, to, to ban proper Torah worship and introduce Syrian worship into the temple. Uh, and in fulfilment of some of the visions in Daniel, um, God uh, gives them an extraordinary uh, victory over those Syrian powers so that for a century then the Jewish people are able to control their own destinies in a way that they haven't been able to do uh, since the time um, of the early kings. Now, Deuteronomy in particular. Now, over to page um, 1, 2, 7. Um, and there are two pages that I want to look at here. One that says the arguments for the Mosaic origin of Deuteronomy, and then if Moses didn't write Deuteronomy, who did? So here are the arguments for... The, for, the, for the mosaic origin of Deuteronomy that you can find in the Tyndale Commentary on Deuteronomy uh, by J.A. Thompson and in the New International Commentary by Peter Craigie. These are as, as, as conservative scholarly views as you can find. Uh, even they aren't claiming that Moses actually wrote Deuteronomy, but what they're claiming is that Moses, that Moses has a substantial link with its contents which I think is a kind of cheaty way to um, not face the consequences, but that's, um, that's, what that's the way they, work, they attempt to work out the argument. Here are their arguments for a strong link between Moses and Deuteronomy. First, it's the universal tradition of early Judaism and early Christianity. But early Judaism is a thousand years after Moses' day, uh, so that's not much of a tradition really. Second, it's implied by the attitude of Jesus, because Jesus will say, Moses says. But is it? Is, Moses, is, is Jesus pronouncing on questions about authorship when he says, Moses says? Surely rather Jesus is saying, this is what the Torah says, this is what God's word says. Uh, this is where you'll find it in the scripture. He's not, he's not saying it was Moses, not J-E-D-P. He's saying it was Moses, not just human tradition. Or it's Moses, not Isaiah. Third, the book of Deuteronomy itself uh, speaks of Moses as the author of its main contents. If Moses isn't the author of its main contents, then it's fraudulent. Um, that's a natural thing for us to think in a modern context. Uh, in a pre-modern context, people don't seem to have thought that way. 
there uh, is at least one of the documents from, from Qumran that presents itself to you uh, as uh, teaching of Moses at Sinai. But everybody knew that that wasn't teaching from Moses at Sinai. Uh, the significance of expressing it that way in the Temple Scroll was to say, this is the kind of thing that Moses would say if Moses were here now. This is, uh, this is an exposition, um, we believe, inspired by God, uh, of the implications of Moses' kind of faith. Um, and it seems to me to be fine if Deuteronomy is that kind of thing. That is what I believe that Deuteronomy is. Um, an exposition by people of what Mosaic faith means now. And the now is several centuries after Moses' day. Fourthly, Deuteronomy envisages the, state, envisages the state of society of the late second millennium. That is, in the sense that there's no reference to a possible capital and temple at Jerusalem. That's true, though the other side of the coin is that Deuteronomy does, as I've suggested, envisage a settled society, and it talks in terms of prophecy uh, and monarchy, uh, so that the argument about the state of society that it talks about works both ways. Fifth, as I suggested to you last time, Deuteronomy follows the form of a treaty between a Middle Eastern king and his vassals, his um, underlings. Uh, and that kind of treaty, the kind of treaty that Deuteronomy parallels, is best known in the second millennium, in Moses' day, rather than in the first millennium. Uh, maybe, though that's actually a, um, a big argument. It's almost an argument from silence. Well, it is an argument from silence, really. That is, um, it's not clear whether there is a big difference between second millennium treaties and first millennium treaties uh, of, the, of the, the kind of difference that you'd need in order for that argument to work well. Sixthly, some of Deuteronomy's requirements appear in the prophets. Well, that's true, but that doesn't prove a great deal. Seventh, the themes of Deuteronomy match the themes of early Old Testament material, such as Exodus 15, the Song of Moses and Miriam. That's true, but that doesn't prove a great deal. Seventhly, can I count? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eighthly, um, Deuteronomy's mature, systematic exposition of Israel's faith matches the Old Testament general picture of the significance of the Mosaic period. Yeah, that's true, but that doesn't prove a great deal. But those are the arguments. Over the page, if Moses didn't write Deuteronomy, who did? And I warn you that this uh, page comes to a gloomy conclusion. As I was saying just now, key elements in the teaching in Deuteronomy became a living force in Israel's life through the reform of Josiah in 622. The measures undertaken in Josiah's reform overlap with Deuteronomy more closely than with any other part of the Torah. Especially the stress in Deuteronomy on closing down places of worship other than the temple in Jerusalem. Now, supposing... On, on the um, Thompson-Craigie theory, Deuteronomy then had been written 600 years before Josiah's day and then had been mysteriously lost. But suppose it had only been written fairly recently before Josiah's day. Who then wrote it? Here are some theories. Was it people who belonged to the royal court? And there was, in other words, was it the king's own servants? They wrote Deuteronomy, then they tucked it behind the air conditioning system, then they suddenly found it and took it back to the king and said, oh, we've got this, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
But the trouble with that theory is Deuteronomy downplays the significance of the monarchy itself. So it's not very likely it's the king's guys who wrote it. Deuteronomy sets out a constitution for Israel in which the king is marginal. Okay, with the kind of people who wrote Deuteronomy, priests. But Deuteronomy implies that the rights of priests should be extended to other Levites. So these priests must have been very selfless. Okay, was Deuteronomy written by Levites? And Gerhard von Raad has this um, theory which has been quite influential that the origin of Deuteronomy lies uh, in Levites who had been the people who ministered uh, in Ephraim in the northern kingdom uh, before the fall of Ephraim in 722. And they were people who came south, came down into Judah after the fall of Samaria, after the fall of Ephraim. And what they are doing in Deuteronomy uh, is putting into permanent form uh, traditions from Ephraim, traditions from the north, in order to encourage Judah to avoid going through the same fate as the northern kingdom had gone through. Uh, Now, the idea of the Levites being teachers uh, is a good idea. Nehemiah chapter 8 describes the Levites as involved in teaching the Torah. But in other ways, Deuteronomy holds the Levites back. Uh, And Deuteronomy brackets the Levites with underclass people like aliens and orphans. So it doesn't look like the Levites. Okay, did Deuteronomy emerge from prophetic circles, from the circles of prophets? And Deuteronomy does reflect the same concerns as the prophets with justice and with, reflects the ambivalent attitude to the monarchy that the um, prophets had got. So, maybe it's the result of an attempt to put prophetic convictions, especially the convictions of Hosea as a prophet, into the form of teaching. That's Ernest Nicholson's theory. But then, Deuteronomy doesn't give any prominence to prophecy and rather warns of its dangers. So that doesn't look so impressive. Okay, another theory. Deuteronomy is the greatest work of systematic theology and ethics in the Old Testament, I suggested to you last time. And that suggests links with the academic tradition, the philosophical tradition, the teaching tradition, that's represented by the wise men, the sages of Israel the kind of guys whose work lies behind Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, the scribes. Uh, And that's the thesis of another Israeli scholar called Moshe Weinfeld. And Deuteronomy has many parallels with the the teaching of the wise in Proverbs. The stress on listening and obeying, stress on righteousness, finding its reward in blessing. But if the authors of Deuteronomy belonged in the circles of the wise, it's very subtle of them not to mention themselves and their role at all. So we're left with a statement that the authors of Deuteronomy were the Deuteronomists. <laughs> That's why in, in, in scholarly books, in, in um, critical books, in, text, uh, in, in survey books and whatnot, you'll find lots of references to the Deuteronomists. Why are they always referring to the Deuteronomists? Because nobody knows who they were. <laughs> but they are the guys who lie behind Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic history. But we don't know who else to identify them with. So, I apologise. We don't know who wrote Deuteronomy. And we don't know who wrote, for that matter, who wrote J, or who wrote E, or who wrote P, or who put the Torah together. Some of you want to know who wrote the Pentateuch. I'm sorry, I don't know. And and I don't think anybody knows. And the people who think they do know are probably wrong. And the people who think we might work it out by next decade, they're probably wrong too. Because the Pentateuch actually does not provide the information. It looks as if God didn't think this was an important thing for us to know. 
looking for the book's authorship is not a plausible way to try to understand Deuteronomy. So how do, where, where does the Old Testament suggest you should look for an understanding of Deuteronomy? And I think the Deuteronomy or the Deuteronomistic history um, offers three contexts against which to understand it. Uh, and this is the way to go about. Rather than asking who wrote it, it's, it's who is it written for, in what context does it work? The three contexts are the edge of the promised land, where Deuteronomy is actually set in the story. So here are the people on the edge of the land, and Deuteronomy is a book to describe how you're supposed to live in the land. And then secondly, the books of Kings, the Deuteronomistic history, in effect invites you, invite you to read it in the context of Josiah's reform, to see the book then as offering a critique of the way in which the people live. And then thirdly, the book of Deuteronomy itself uh, talks about the exile, talks about the possibility of people being taken off into exile, and about how you're going to handle that question. Uh, and so Deuteronomy provides you with the reason why the people were taken, taken off into exile, but also offers you bases for hope when you are in exile. And seeking to understand the book against the background of those contexts suggested by the Old Testament itself will get you further uh, than unprovable theories about who wrote it. 722, go away, come back. <laughs>